Hi, and welcome to Faculty Focus, a podcast supporting the clinical education community in Leicester. We bring you Educator CPD, showcasing initiatives and shine a light on some of the faculty behind it all. In this episode, we discuss self-determination theory. Based on the assumption that human behaviour is driven by the need for growth and that intrinsic motivation is important, there are three basic needs according to this theory. Competence, relatedness and autonomy. We use the theory as a lens through which to interpret and modify teaching and ask if it holds true in all examples or are there gaps. This is one of those theories which really helps me to make sense of problems with learner engagement. We hope you enjoy. Anyway, <laughs> you sprung this how was your weekend? I don't know. Fine, <laughs> what did you get up to? Fine. I, don't, I don't know if I can beat that, to be honest, the, the level of excitement there. I sat in silence. With the drums? Oh, yeah. Do you not get on your drums? <laughs> you get, I think you get behind the drums. And I think that's the... That's the term. Don't get on. <laughs> you don't get <laughs> Cool. Um, I, I played a bit, bit of guitar, if you must know. But no, I um, I'm totally committed to my life in medicine. So so all I do is study. Seriously, and um, I allow myself ten minutes of, of me time. I don't know if you're being serious. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I'm I'm not. No, I actually had a nice weekend. Here. Went spent spent with family. Cool. Went to London. All right. Oh, nice. Yeah. Very nice. Yeah. No train strikes at the moment. So no, no, it was quite stress-free. Well, I'm glad to hear you're so motivated about your um, medical career and your learning because today we're going to talk about a motivational theory, a self-determination theory. So uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about self-determination theory? So this self-determination theory, so this is this is all about motivation and we kind of, when we're talking about Maslow, it is all about motivation and this really feels fundamental especially in education, understanding why someone wants to do something feels fundamental. And so self-determination theory is, is a motivational theory, it's exploring motivation. It was first coined in the mid-80s, which I think was a good decade <laughs> for psychology research. For psychology, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're absolutely right. Agreed. And, and, and this is all about quality of motivation in response to these ideas about motivation being sort of proportional and one person is more motivated, someone else is less motivated. And actually it's dispelling that, thinking instead about motivation in terms of its quality. The definition that they give really about self-determination is a person's own ability to manage themselves and make confident choices and to think on their own. Fundamentally, the, the distinction is made early on in this theory about subtyping motivation into intrinsic and extrinsic. Intrinsic motivation fundamentally comes from within. If you're intrinsically motivated, you're motivated by interest and curiosity. In some way, the activity that you're doing aligns with yourself, your personality, your sense of morality. Yeah, you're doing it out of your own free will, if you like. You're not being forced to do it. Yeah. And that's contrasted with extrinsic motivation, where the motivation, instead of coming from within, comes from external sources. So broadly speaking, that might be the seeking some kind of financial reward, some kind of social status, or avoiding punishment. So, so not doing badly in an exam, not letting someone else down. 
I think that's um, that's really useful, actually. Um, one of the few times I've seen this actually spelt out in a, in a kind of an academic sense, because I think a lot of people understand intrinsic, extrinsic motivation. Like we use those terms quite a lot. It's an accepted view of motivation. So that's intrinsic, extrinsic motivation. And then um, so that it takes it next step further and it looks specifically at what we need to do to foster intrinsic motivation. Yeah, similar to when we talked about Maslow's sort of laying out that humans have these fundamental needs. In self-determination, it's these three. So competence, relatedness, and autonomy. Competence is really about being able to demonstrate that you are progressing and mastering something in life, that you are able to successfully complete tasks. The second is relatedness, the need for connection with others, feeling as though you're part of a community. That really links into to, to the idea of self-worth and respect. And then the third one, which is perhaps the most important one, is autonomy. The ability to, to have control of your own choices and, and to, to make decisions for yourself, really. Mm-hmm. So these three sort of overlap. And if, if, if all three are achieved, so if you're able to have control over the decisions you make, if you feel some kind of connection with the community around you, and if you have that sense of competence and sense of progression and mastery, then that can promote intrinsic motivation. Mm. And, and that's really fundamental because so much research has, has been conducted into this that shows that intrinsic motivation is associated with more academic progression, mm-hmm. um, but also well-being. And that yeah. really fits in later as well. And, and the other thing I like about this theory is that it's so, actually on the surface of it, it's really simple. And it's the sort of thing that you can just walk away with those three needs and just start looking around you and sort of listen to the conversations that people are having around you. And suddenly you can identify these elements everywhere. Totally. And, and I, I, you know, I, I try to be objective and, and all empirical and scientific, but I've got to admit this, I love this theory. It's, 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 not, it's not often that you, you come across something and it sort of, it clicks straight away and then since I first came across it, as you say, you can just, you can see it everywhere. It, it just, it makes sense. And I, I, I can apply it to myself. Why am I motivated about playing guitar much more than I am about going to work? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. That's not what I was going to say. That's right. I said it for you. That's fine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I imagine you're competent at playing the guitar. <laughs> so, to some degree, the big, at least it satisfies your competence. Need. Precisely. Um, I'm so good. But yeah, no, when we talk about this, when we talk about um, this theory and when we think about trainees, I do think that you already fall over on, on all three of these yeah, because exactly. simply by the nature of them starting out in their career, their competence is quite limited, isn't it? You know, you, you, you start in medicine and you build up your competence over time. So if you're, you know, right at the start, it's going to be very difficult for you to feel competent coming into yeah. work in, in all but the very basic ward day-to-day jobs sort of thing. And it's going to take some time before you develop that feeling of competence and and with that that feeling of i'm contributing to this team i feel and that relatedness to yeah. those around you and you know the ward staff or the clinic staff or the theater staff i think once you understand this and when you see the trainees in front of you you can start to understand why maybe they're not showing the level of engagement yeah. or motivation that you would hope they would so, so you know that's one of the with with curricula based 
education and in particular when you know in clinical education it's so outcome centered so so what role does autonomy play there how can a student decide for themselves how they're going to progress through the curriculum when there are very strict sets of guidelines yeah. and the, the other thing is there's there's so many points of transition throughout education in general going from school to university you know you just become competent in one place and then you move to another place yeah then moving from, from medical school to foundation training, you just hit that three-month point and you feel that you're competent as an F1 or an F2. You feel that connection with, with, with the ward staff. You know where everything is. You're just about developing that autonomy. You can manage certain situations by yourself and then you're in a new place where you don't know anyone, you feel incompetent, and you, you don't have that autonomy. Yeah. yeah. You know, just by the nature of training, you're purposefully pushing the envelope of competence all the time aren't you and this is where it kind of comes into conflict with growth mindset you know not being afraid of failure or uh, difficulty um, because that represents growth and development and it's a good thing but you know but it's very difficult to square with this kind of human basic human need of needing to feel competent in your environment and that's why we all shrink away from change that's why we shrink away from uh, difficult tasks because we naturally want to feel competent and that we're contributing to the environment around us. So, um, um, but maybe it's a maybe it's a something that needs to be a sort of a proportion of your practice is competence. You know, you feel competent in let's say I don't know eighty percent of what you do, and then you've got you know you've got enough sort of security to then move into those other areas where you need to develop. So, how can we how can we work on you know, building these things up in a in a teaching environment? Teaching is moving someone into an area where they or realizing they're not as competent and then bringing them up to that level of competence. So we're working in that area. So I think it's really important then to make sure that we hit the mark on, on the other two needs. For me, I would say, you know, this is where rapport is really important. And anyone who's given feedback uh, knows how important rapport building is. And you need to have that relatedness to the person who you're having a conversation with. You need to trust that they have they've got the authority to give you that feedback, but also that they're open to having feedback going the other way as well. Um, and all that kind of builds into giving this sort of feeling of relatedness. And if we took it back to something like Maslow, this is probably the level where we're talking about esteem and belonging. So you can see how that as a theme has come through both of these theories. So when we're teaching, you know, what are we doing to show that, you know, you know building relationships with the, the trainee and showing that it's okay to not get things right and you know, maybe we were in those positions before, trying to take the fear out of those learning environments, I think is probably one of the most important things that you can do to get people to open up to, to then engage with, um, with new material and, and learning. The autonomy one's quite a tricky one. If there's any way of giving people an option of what to learn in what order, um, or use resources in whatever way they see fit, you have a range of different resources that they can access to obtain the knowledge or to obtain the skills, then that might be a way of introducing a little bit of autonomy in, in so much as that they have autonomy over their learning. If, if there's opportunities for people to work in pairs or in groups, uh, perhaps collaboratively come up with a management plan for a patient so they, they have a, you know, a period of time where they can get on with things on their own and then they come back yeah. and present it to everybody else. Um, that might be a way of 
allowing them to have a bit of autonomy. And it may be that in a clinical environment, for me, I guess there are elements of practice which everyone can do to a certain degree of autonomy. So a simpler task, you're talking about in anaesthetics, day one, CT1 anaesthetics, where you can you still have some of the skills that you've learned as an F1 and an F2. So you can you can do some cannulas, you can hold an airway, because these are the things they would have learned um, you know, on, on various courses, maybe even on, on the wards. So there are little things that they can do, very task-specific things, which allow some degree of autonomy, but of course, the more complex management of the whole anaesthetic is out of their scope of practice. And, and I think one of the other things I, I think that can really stifle learning is a lot of trainees come through thinking that there's one way of doing something. Um, and, I, and, and I know myself and a lot of my colleagues have, do try and point out very explicitly that actually there are lots of different ways of delivering this particular anaesthetic or particular procedure. It's just that you need to find a way of making it you know, yours and comfortable the way that you're doing it. Because you, if you try and, if you assume that everything's only done one way, you'll never feel competent because you'll you move to another person, I'll yeah, do it a different yeah. way, and then you, you sort of rugs pulled out from under you. So so I think just being aware of how you like to do things and how how it can be done, you know, what principles need to be attended to rather than the details of, of a specific procedure or technique. It's, it's the balance between control and risk. So mm. how much control in this scenario can I give to the learners? As you said, if it's something like, conduct your own learning into X, Y, Z topics. And as you, as you say, you know, come back in a month. And if you've done it competently, great. You can demonstrate your competence. We can run through scenarios. Brilliant. If you haven't done it, then, you know, it's, it's going to cause problems for you as an individual learner later on in life. Um, and then balance that with the risk, of course, if you're just asking someone to make a presentation about a clinical scenario, then you can give a learner much more autonomy. If it's how to hold open an airway in an, an acute scenario, then you obviously need to think about how you can give the learner autonomy whilst minimizing risk. And of course, that links into competence because the more competent someone becomes, the, the more autonomy yeah. they can have in those situations. Yeah, yeah. And I know certainly other company, you know, within anaesthetics, probably across a lot of curriculum, you know, we've moved to this level of supervision as a rating scale rather than good, satisfactory, excellent, that sort of thing. And yeah, and it, it really ties into levels of autonomy. So do you need to be supervised in the room with someone sort of watching everything you do, or can you be supervised with someone in the hospital, or can it be out of the hospital just on the phone for advice? And I quite like that, and almost like explicitly putting level of autonomy as the rating scale used for um, for progress, you know, for your yeah, workplace-based assessments. And it, and it really links in with particularly the specialties that are very much consultant-led. How does that affect a learner's autonomy? How does that impact their competence? And, and how can you as an educator try to foster this autonomy and competence and intrinsic motivation? You've mentioned something there that was quite interesting in that through your training, you may start to adopt some of those rules and requirements as, as part of your self-identity. Yeah, so self-determination theory itself is a meta-theory with at least six sub-theories, so it does get complicated. Some of those sub-theories think about how extrinsic factors and motivators become internalised. So to what degree do 
aspects such as financial rewards, social standing, progression of quality of life become internalized and become the reasons that drive intrinsic motivation. What they went on to, to, to discuss and, and explore was that if traditionally extrinsic factors align with an individual's morality and values and personality, then those extrinsic factors can have as much weight as interest, as curiosity, as passion, mm. um, and they become self-regulated. So, so they're internalized and synthesized with, with our own values and, and morality and personality. These intrinsic and extrinsic factors end up, if you look at the, the, the latest iterations of it, end up becoming more like a spectrum, mm. where on the one hand you have a motivation, so a total lack of motivation. On the other hand, you have completely intrinsic motivation generated by intrinsic factors. Mm. And then extrinsic motivation is really sort of divided up. Right, I think if you want to look into the, some of the more complex stuff about this idea of a spectrum, you could probably go away and read about those those different types of regulation and how that moves through the spectrum from a, a motivation through to intrinsic motivation. But interestingly, though, one of the things that I did read is that sometimes if you if people are intrinsically motivated to do a job, but then you introduce lots of extrinsic rewards for something which is already something they want to do, it can have the reverse effect. You almost start to create a mentality where they're now chasing the external reward rather than sort of satisfying their own internal mm -hmm. motivational needs. So, you know, if people enjoy coming to work and getting through X amount of cases or doing X amount of work, and then you say, right, for each piece of work you do, you're going to get uh, a bonus of, you know, five or 10 pounds. Mm -hmm. um, well, then people start chasing the money. And now that they, they're completely, their focus is now on getting the bonus rather than doing the job, which they really enjoy doing effectively and efficiently mm -hmm. themselves. So you got to be quite careful with these, with with giving these rewards, and it, it makes me think about the teacher. We've we've probably all done this at some point. Who brings a, a box of celebrations uh, <laughs> to to the classroom what? and you start handing out sweets for correct answers? Oh, and uh, experienced this myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The point is, people are not really interested in getting the answer right for the feeling good and and feeling like becoming a better doctor. They just want the swing. Yeah. <laughs> so I think that should be the takeaway point of this. Don't bring celebrations to teach it. It's all about the sweets. Just, <laughs> just think about self-determination theory before you do that. So I've always thought this intrinsic, extrinsic motivation thing, when you boil it down, you could probably sit down with anything and go, well, it's all extrinsic, isn't it? Because yeah. we all do things because we want to achieve something external, whether it's money, status, um, image, whatever it is. So could, could you argue that everything's external? And this theory, actually, it doesn't sort of pretend that it's binary. It does present you with a spectrum. If we, you know, when you go and look at some of the later adaptations, it provides you with a spectrum in that some of those in external motivations can become internal. And you don't then have to you know, be so hung up on this idea of is it external, is it internal? Because they can, things can move around. Yeah. Whatever those motivators are, they can, they can sort of change over time. It's rare, I think, to, to be totally intrinsically motivated. There, there are some elements of, of everyone's job where, yeah, it, it's, you can see, you can be passionate and curious about a lot of it, but not all of it. Does that mean that just because there, is, there are some elements of extrinsic motivation, that the 
overall quality of motivation is, is depleted. And I think in reality, in, in real life, there are, there are multiple factors at play. I think, yeah, just be, be, having an awareness of that at, at the very least, but also how it applies to, to education. And um, Yeah, so when you're talking about self-determination theory, there are some assumptions you, you need to um, bear in mind, and that is, firstly, that humans want to overcome challenges and they want to grow and develop themselves as individuals. That's number one. And number two is that there are internal, the internal motivators are much, um, have a greater weight than external motivators. So those are the two things you need to bear in mind. And if you don't agree with that, then you're probably going to not agree with some of the, some of the, um, yeah. the, the extrapolations of this theory. Um, but of course, it, you know, there are a number of different limitations as well. Um, you know, for example, you've, it can be quite complex, particularly when you go into all the different sub-theories that you they've touched on, um, and then and then there's the development of the spectrum. Um, it can become really complex. So it, I think if you start doing that, it might become really a little bit more difficult to apply in the real world because, as we said at the beginning, you you can actually see this in in practice. Yeah, it's yeah. it's definitely definitely one that when when you know about it, and as we said, you can you you. Ref- you can reflect with it and, and see, oh yeah, this is a scenario where trainees don't have autonomy or this is a scenario where trainees don't have the ability to demonstrate competence. It, it's, it's definitely applicable for, for reflection. It's difficult to measure. You know, what, what's, what's the empirical sort of objective way of applying this? Do you, do you have some kind of curriculum? That's, that's yeah, really what difficult? metric are you going to choose yeah. to, to measure it with? And, and I guess motivation is that it's a necessarily subjective thing, isn't it? Yeah. So you're, you're, you're stuck with, yeah, I think we've come from a scientific background and you think, oh, you have to be objective in everything. But actually, this is, this is one of those where you know, it is entirely subjective. Um, one of the other things is that this really does focus on the, the psychological needs of humans rather than any of the physiological needs. And whilst the physiological sound a bit not relevant mm. in, you know, in, a, in, a, in a Western environment, there are sometimes some physiological needs that also need to be met. Yeah. But this is really just on the psychological. Um, the the other thing is is that um, do, you know do do people need a community? Does everyone need a community? Yeah. Do they need to feel part of a community? Um, and I, I don't know whether this is different to being sort of extrovert or introvert. Uh, I'm not too sure, but that need for community, that need for relatedness, I think is always there. But maybe it's less important in certain environments. It, it's really interesting, and, and definitely the assumption made in self determination theory is that the, the power of the community is is positive, and of course, it isn't necessarily. I think we can all think of examples where actually the impact of the community that has resulted in someone becoming demotivated um, because of the need to fit in with a community that doesn't necessarily align with your own personal values or personality, mm. um, the assumptions made by a community as to how you're going to behave and how you're going to fit in. Mm. Um, so, so I think the, the community isn't necessarily the positive relatedness that an individual requires to be motivated. Um, and then, of course, as, as you say, individual differences. Um, does, does everyone need that stimulation by a community? Not necessarily. I mean, certainly in histology, there's different 
that it, it's not all, we, we're not just in a basement staring down a microscope the entire time. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we are mostly, but not in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> but but for sure, it's a totally different community to to you know working in A and E. Um, yeah. It suits some people and not others. So, so I think. But I think even in those situations, there is that relatedness element, isn't there? You're still part of that, that team and yeah. that, that profession. Yeah. Like, yeah. So, so, so I think this is it's more nuanced than necessarily just the idea of you need to be around people and connect with them. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, yeah. It's, it's, I don't think it's quite. Yeah, it's not not that. One interesting limitation, I think this might apply to, to Maslow as well and to this one, and there's the extent to which these are ethnocentric. Is the idea of autonomy a Western-derived principle? It's, it's way beyond the scope of this podcast to, to explore that and, and dice it down. But in particular, sort of the relation between learners and the hierarchy, it's well established that it's totally different between cultures and is the idea of self-control and doing having the freedom to make your own decisions independent of a hierarchical institution mm. is that comfortable for all learners or does it actually leave certain individuals who actually need that framework and autonomy is less important yeah well, i think that's that's certainly some interesting points and, and it's like with all theories it is a framework through which, or a lens through which, you can look at certain situations. And it's not to say that this theory is, is better than any other theory. It just provides a little bit of structure to how you think about something. Um, this is probably one of those rare ones where you can actually see it around you. Once you understand the really basic yeah. parts of it, you can start to apply it all around you, whether that be in a teaching sense or um, you know, in, in, in terms of your career or your, your work. Um, you can you can really see these things around yeah. you, but also be aware of some of the limitations because with a lot of these theories, there is that element of it, it has a lot of face validity. It, um, you know, you, you go out you go out looking for confirmation of yeah. that, so there yeah, is yeah. a huge degree of confirmation bias. So just being aware of some of the limitations there is really important. And I and I, I like the idea of you know different cultures may may not really sign up to this. Yeah. Um, so just something to think about. Um, great theory. I think it's really useful. Uh, applies in loads of different areas. And let us know what you think. Have you used it? Um, has it shaped the way you deliver your teaching or have conversations around you? Um, we'd be interested to hear from you. Thank you for listening. That's it. Cheerio. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Faculty Focus podcast. If you like the episode, please share with friends and colleagues. You can also like and subscribe to the show and perhaps even leave us a review. Clinical education can be tough, but we are stronger as a community. So if you have an idea for an episode or would like to come and talk to us, do get in touch via email or Twitter. Details in the show notes. The Faculty Focus Podcast. Community. Development. Showcase.